Uh, hey, everybody. Welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because it is our last show of 2022. It is our annual rundown of the overrated, the underrated, and the ugly, which means I am joined, as always, for this very special year-end episode by JB. What a year it's been. I'm still alive. You are still alive, and you. Uh, this is your first end of the year in California. Yes, and I'll avoid telling everyone what the temperature is here and, and gloating, but... Um... I'll just say it's it rhymes with Peventy. <laughs> oh, that's a, that was a very clever workaround. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is always a fun show to do. I'm excited to talk about, especially our underrated movies, because I always walk away with some picks for stuff to watch or stuff that I missed that fell through the cracks to check out. And of course, as we were just discussing before we pressed record. We still call this, you know, the underrated, the overrated, and the ugly, but we've kind of moved away from the whole overrated, and we've changed it to, like, I didn't get it, or I didn't like this, because technically there's no such thing as overrated anymore, and we get it, so... So uh, what it really is, is, here are some films that have fallen through the cracks that you should see. Exactly. Then, there's films you should stay far away from. <laughs> there's another group that you should get even farther away from still in fact i'm looking at my underrated list whatever you want to call it and a majority of them i saw because you recommended them to me oh and i like them or love them and so i'm trying to do the same thing for our listeners because your life will be improved to the extent that you watch the underrated ones all right. Well, let's start with those. Yeah, I can. Uh, let's start on a positive note. I think we usually do. Uh, what is your first pick for an underrated movie of 2022, JB? And I believe this was your recommendation, and I believe this was during October, and it's a little film called My Best Friend's Exorcism. That was not my recommendation because I have not seen it. You're kidding. No, I read Could the I have book. just been canoodling about on a streaming service. It's One more night. than possible. It's on Amazon Prime, so it's it's very possible. And my wife said, I cannot watch It's a Mad, 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 Mad <laughs> World. One more time. Can we watch something? Hey, Tub of Guts, can we watch something new, please? Um, it's right up your alley in that it seizes its premise and goes with it and is unashamedly what it is and what it is i didn't find out till the end credits it's based on a ya novel yeah i've read the book but i haven't seen the movie and it's so much fun and it never stops being something new and and unfolding something different um for some reason i keep thinking it was a musical but it wasn't <laughs> I'm confusing it with Anna in the Apocalypse and another film I'm going to recommend in a in a minute but um it's it's so much fun and doesn't aspire to be anything beyond what it is and what it is 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 90 minutes of fun. All right, I'm not familiar with the 
director whose name is Damon Thomas. It looks like he's done mostly television. This appears to be his first feature. And I think there was only one actor in it that I was familiar with at all. The girl from eighth grade is in it, right? Yes. That's... Okay. Whose name I should know off the top of my head. And you know. of course, don't. Elsie Fisher. Go ask, her name. go ask Bo Burnham. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, that's a good first pick. Um, my first pick, hmm, where should I start? Oh, I'll go with uh, a movie called Duel, D-U-A-L, uh, which is the latest movie from Riley Stearns, who made a, a really terrific comedy a couple of years ago called The Art of Self-Defense. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And... Duel is stars Karen Gillan in a very funny, very kind of deadpan performance as a woman who learns that she's I don't want to give away too much, who learns that she is dying. So she has herself cloned so as to make life easier on all her loved ones. When she goes, they can still be friends with and or family and or date the clone. And then she finds out that she was misdiagnosed and she's not dying. And the only way, but only one of them can survive. So they have to fight to the death to see which one is going (laughs) to live out the rest of her life. Um, It reminded me in some ways of like a Yorgos Lathamos movie because everyone is sort of very deadpan, uh, but it's really, funny and weird and says a lot of things about relationships uh i think it's really kind of a cool movie it is i believe streaming on hulu right now i rented it on vod because i rob had reviewed it for the site and turned me on to it i had wanted to see it because i'm a riley stearns fan and a karen gillen fan but his review really tipped me to want to watch it and i think it's streaming on hulu now and hulu is one of the ones i kept And I was actually reading about Duel last night as I prepared for this podcast, which I usually do by going through a list of all the films that were released in the year, just in case something fell through the cracks. And it attracted my attention because for just a second, I thought it might be a remake of the Steven Spielberg film. Sadly, no. But it sounds interesting. It sounds like a like a combination. Here's the pitch. Here's the pitch meeting. It's a combination of multiplicity and that Alec Alec Guinness movie where he goes on a vacation because he thinks he's dying. I haven't seen that movie. Whatever it's it is. not as famous as The Man in the White Suit. I think it's called okay. The Last Vacation, The Last Weekend. Listeners, write in the space below what film I'm thinking of. Um, it's not one of the more famous Ealing comedies, but okay. it sounds a little bit like what you're describing. Yeah, Duel is good. And you were an Art of Self-Defense fan, right? Oh, my God, because I believe the first time I saw that was in your basement. That's very possible. Uh, My next underrated film was definitely recommended by P. Bromley. It's what my wife and I are now calling one of the COVID films. Because in the future, we will look back and there will be a certain type of modest film with few locations and few actors. And we will remember, oh yes, they had to do that because of the COVID restrictions in terms of filming. 
And I went into this with no expectations. Um, and I really liked it. I'm not claiming it's the greatest film ever made, mm. but the film is called Meet Cute with Pete Davidson and Kaylee Cuoco. And although now it seems to be a trope that we have a generation of young people, my son went to school with some of them who were unshakably uh, inspired by Groundhog Day. And this fits comfortably under mm -hmm. that rubric, along mm -hmm. with Palm Springs. Um, I thought between the writing and the performances, it was so much better than what I expected. I remember having a lot of questions about the rules of the movie, which is probably beside the point. Um, but I was very confused about certain things in terms of, well, why does she keep telling him this thing? And why, how much does he know at this point? But like you, I enjoyed spending, it's like 75 minutes. It's insanely short. And I enjoyed spending 75 minutes in the company of those two actors. And this shows us, and, and again, this was another, we cannot watch Mad Mad World again. Can <laughs> we please watch something that was made in this century? And um, it shows us what a genius Rian Johnson is, because in Looper, there is a scene. It might be my favorite scene in Looper, but every movie that that deals with any of these tropes needs to have a scene where the filmmaker shows the rough cut to people and finds out what these questions are. Like you're right, saying, you're right. questioning the mechanism of it. And then you have a scene where the two characters sit down and one of the characters bring up these questions and the other one says, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> and we'll call that the Rian Johnson scene. You know what it reminds me of? Um, oh, it was in uh, Avatar, The Way of Water, that someone said a couple years ago that the the world of film owns a owes a debt of gratitude to um who directed hunt for red october mctiernan yeah the scene where they're speaking russian oh and right the camera tracks in <laughs> and they are speaking english and the camera tracks out and it's like get it right we know they're really speaking russian um how many films have taken that little piece of uh right where and done it again we need to make that uh the same for this rian johnson thing we're not <laughs> going to talk about that um but again if you're overwhelmed by life and you're just looking for something that's light and sweet for an hour and 15 minutes mm -hmm. meet cute was good i was actually giving pete davidson credit uh for choosing interesting projects post snl yeah, he might have. I'm guessing he made that one one that one while he was still on SNL, mm. maybe during a break or who knows. But uh, speaking of SNL. Yeah. Uh, lately, I've become obsessed with a YouTube video of a musical number from when Daniel Radcliffe was in the revival of how to succeed in business without really trying. Okay. And I don't know who choreographed that show. God knows it was 11 years ago, but it was on the Tonys. They were on the Today Show. They went on The View. And every time they were trying to chill for how to succeed in business, they would do the uh, Brotherhood of Man number because it was such a showstopper and it was amazing and the dancing was incredible. When NBC got the Super Bowl, this was 10 years ago. They did a special promo with all their hit shows, with all the people on the hit shows 
doing that. Have you seen it? No. I just came upon it last night. And you can find it on the YouTube machine. And Alec Baldwin sings. And it's really funny. And it's really well produced. And you're like, oh, holy shit, man. They spent some money on this. So check it out if you like musicals. Okay. Um, This is not on my list, but your inclusion of Meet Cute reminded me of another decent romantic comedy that went straight to streaming, which is where romantic comedies seem to go these days. (laughs) It's an Amazon Prime movie called I Want You Back with Charlie Day and Jenny Slate. Did you happen to see that? Which which I was also reading about last night, and it reminded me that I meant to see that um, this year. One of the first live comedy shows i went to when i moved was jenny slate yeah good again it just speaks to you know affection for the performers will carry you a long way in a low to mid budget romantic comedy and if you like the people involved you're willing to spend 90 minutes with them in that film does charlie day succeed in toning it down he does a little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, Charlie Day, I'm afraid, suffers from what I'm going to call Bert Lahr syndrome. Why did Bert Lahr work so well as the cowardly lion? Well, you had to act past the costume, and the costume was excessive, and that whole film is sort of larger than life. If Have you ever seen any other movie with Bert Lahr in it? I don't believe so. It's hard to watch. <laughs> he is so there and so on and so it's like you want to walk out of the room it's like Bert Bert tone it down turn it down and I think his daughter has said this that was his problem in movies that every one of his performances was pitched so every time I see Charlie Day it's like you know dude you're not always doing a Mountain Dew commercial (laughs) Uh, my next pick might also be on your list and or might be on your list for next week, so I won't talk about it too much. Uh, but that's a movie we've talked about on the show at least once already. It is Confess Fletch. And I can neither confirm nor deny what you're talking about, but given how great that movie is, I can't believe it got a theatrical run. Um. And then it goes to streaming and then it disappears from the conversation. Because as we've discussed for 11 years or 13, comedies are very hard to make and good comedies are in very short supply. And that movie is just so effortlessly good. Yeah. Um, I said this in my moments column for the year. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden is so funny in that movie And I've seen her in other things. In fact, I've seen her live on the Broadway stage. That's right. I got to talk to her after the show. Um, Think about the range this woman has. Um, She's in Confess Fletch as a woman who feels someone's trying to seduce her who's not. (laughs) And then compare that performance to her performance in The Mist. Where she also believes someone is trying (laughs) to seduce her. But that person is Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) It's uh, and that's just one of the the delights of Confess Fletch. I mean, that's just it's it's like a ring with many gems in it. And Marsha Gay Harden is only one of the gems. Um, and who would have thought that the the Fletch role was so perfect for John Hamm? Um, 
I, I can't believe it didn't get more attention that it didn't become a larger part of the conversation. I don't know if it was a, if it was a, a COVID thing, if it was a streaming thing, because it went, I think to streaming at the same time as it's theatrical release. It was one of those yes. like day and date situations. Yes. And uh, the only, the only thing I heard for about three weeks was everyone who saw it was amazed at how good it was. Yeah. And yeah. And, it, and said like, Hey, they finally found the right vehicle for John Hamm post Mad Men, you know, something that allows him to be goofy and funny and charming. And I think every, I think it has a lot in common with a certain, uh, well, we just, we're talking about Ryan Johnson, a, uh, you know, glass onion, which is just now out on Netflix in terms of like, we have this mystery, we have this excellent cast Everyone gets an opportunity to shine and create a character that's like quirky and funny and interesting. The mystery itself is compelling. Like all of these things apply to confess Fletch. Uh, and I really like glass onion, but that's the movie that everybody's talking about and confess Fletch kind of got swept under the rug. It would be nice if some of that attention had been afforded to confess Fletch. Cause it's really, really good. I think Glass Onion benefited from it's the holidays and people had time off of work. Absolutely. And a lot of people streamed it. But I saw Glass Onion during that one week in the theater. Right. right. And I was really glad I did because yeah. it is produced on a grand scale. It's a, a movie. Scale, a lot of the scale is CGI. But still, I appreciated the fact that for what could have been six people in a room. Right. It. <laughs> It's it's spectacular. It's spectacular visually. It's a movie. It was nice to watch a Netflix movie that felt like a movie. And not to spoil anything, but again, because I love comedy and wish there were more of them. There are moments in Glass Onion where everyone in the room gets it except the Kate Hudson character. Yeah. And it's a joke that never grows old. It's so funny. Her shouting what is reality might be my favorite moment in any movie this year. <laughs> <laughs> but Confess Fletch is super good. I want to say it's on Showtime now, but you can rent it or buy it digitally and should. I hope it gets a physical release. I don't know that it will, uh, but it's it's really good. That would be nice. I They've done it in the past that um, Criterion becomes a place where really good streamers get a physical release like Roma and the Irishman. And I think Criterion should pursue that because that could be yet another niche for them. By yeah. the way, this week at Barnes and Noble, uh, not the half off sale, but the uh, Criterion discs are 30% off this week. Oh, okay. Nice. Because they they know you have Christmas money. <laughs> well, there were a couple of things that came out after the last sale yeah that i still want like coolie high and the velvet underground so i was just gonna say coolie high so the next movie i saw in a theater and knew nothing about it i think a previous the best visit, way to see a movie oh my god it would that every visit to the theater could be like this i think jan and i had seen a poster for it on a previous visit but we went to see emily the criminal just based on the fact that this looks interesting and we really like Aubrey Plaza. My God, what a great movie. Yeah. 
That played and, at the Chicago Critics Film Festival this year. I didn't get a chance to see it. I just finally caught up with it because it just showed up on Netflix. And just when you think you have a handle on what it's about, and I don't want to give away the twist, you don't have a handle on what this movie is really about. Um, but of course, as I mentioned in my uh, end of the year column, uh, any movie this year uh, that talked about uh wealth disparity that one of the sub themes of emily the criminal is perhaps how the rich take advantage of the poor um i appreciate it but it's it's whip smart and really clever and really violent yeah so if if our listeners want something whip smart and violent (laughs) you can either see emily the criminal or buy a whip (laughs) Aubrey Plaza is really great she picks interesting stuff to be in for the most part especially now there was a run where she was always like fourth build in shitty raunchy comedies like Oh, that Mike and Dave wedding wedding dates or bad grandpa or dirty grandpa but then you think about um, Ingrid Goes West yes which is kind of amazing. And yeah. I don't know if you've been enjoying the white Lotus. Yeah. But she's on the second season of that. And yeah. she's kind of amazing playing a part that seems to have been written for her. <laughs> By the way, because she was on community, she's in this brotherhood of man spot that I was referencing earlier. She's one of the many people who you never thought you'd see sing and dance, sing and dance, check it out on the YouTube machine. She was on uh, Parks and Rec, not Community, but oh, my bad. Same because the Community people are on that too. It's, okay. Oh, and it's a it's a time capsule because a Matt Lauer is is a focused on, and you're like, oh, that was a different <laughs> time. Um, Donald Trump gets one line because he was starring in The Apprentice. The Community cast sings and dances. The Parks and Rec cast sings and dances, and then there's this inexplicable segment with Will Arnett, Colleen Applegate, and Maya Rudolph. Yeah, because they were on Up All Night at the time. Okay, and I was sitting there going, what sitcom was this that didn't last very long? Was one of them a ghost on that? (laughs) No. I kept thinking, obviously I never saw it, but I was thinking, Will Arnett marries... Colleen Applegate, but Maya Rudolph is the ghost of his first wife. No, that's MacGruber. Where <laughs> Maya Rudolph is the ghost of MacGruber's first wife. But there's also a famous Spanish comedy with that plot. Oh, okay. That later, uh, there's an American version. What was the, the what was the premise? Uh, the, Christina Maya? Applegate and and Will Arnett had a baby. And what would it be like if a couple had a baby, I guess? And Maya Rudolph was the friend. It was one of those oh, shows that like... The Maya Rudolph character was supposed to be Oprah Winfrey. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it like, it like pivoted in the second season, which I stopped watching midway through the first it season. It got a second season? I believe so. And in season two, it went to like a three camera, like studio audience type sitcom, I want to say. Holy shit. They completely revamped it. I never I never made it to the end of season one. Yeah. What were we talking about? Emily the it. Criminal. That's a good movie. Emily the <laughs> Criminal, which everyone should watch. And is now streaming on Netflix. Um my next pick is a is a movie that I 
have talked about earlier this year and knew as soon as I watched it that it would be on my underrated list um, in part because no one has talked about this movie and in part because I always have Westerns on my list because I guess if you make a Western, I have enough affection for you that I'll just be like, yeah, sure, that's underrated. People should see the few Westerns that get made. Um, it's called The Last Sun, and it is streaming on Hulu. For those of you who are interested, it everything about it screams Redbox. Uh, <laughs> it stars Machine Gun Kelly, a.k.a. Colson Baker, Thomas Jane, Sam Worthington, and Heather Graham. So everything oh, wow. about it is a Redbox movie. Um, but essentially, Sam Worthington, giving a very strange performance, plays a guy who is told um, he's 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 like fucked prostitutes all over the country and sired all these children. And then he's told that one of his children will kill him. So he goes around the country murdering all his kids, basically. My God. Um, and. Colson Baker plays one of those kids. Heather Graham is the mother of the of him. Thomas Jane is like a half uh, Native American tracker who's looking for him. It's just I thought it was so good. Um, it's directed by a guy named Tim Sutton, who made a really difficult to watch movie called Dark Knight that played the Chicago Critics Film Festival a couple years ago about a shooting at a movie theater, but it's really beautifully made. And what um, is it called again? The last sun. Uh, it's, it's a snowy Western, which I'm always a sucker for a snowy Western. I really like the Sam Worthington performance. I think machine gun Kelly is like pretty good in terms of what he's asked to do. Thomas Jane gives a weird ass performance. Cause he's Thomas Jane. Uh, I thought it was really, really interesting and really, really good. It's a movie that I've talked about a couple times this year and never really caught any traction. I haven't heard anybody who said like, oh, I watched it based on your recommendation and I also liked it, which means A, either no one watched it or B, people watched it and were nice enough not to say, hey, that was a shitty recommendation. Well, I agree with you that any Western that comes out is deserving of our attention. And I'm guessing I'm getting this wrong, but... Was Old Henry 2021? Uh, yeah. Okay. Because um, that was a surprise. I think that was on my list last year. Yeah. For the same that reason. Was a surprise, delight as well. Yeah. Um, I think one of these was your recommendation. In, in, in my head, these two films are inexplicably, inextricably linked for some reason. Maybe because I watched them both in October as I looked around for scary movies and I listened to my wife saying no more mad, 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 mad world. Um, you had recommended resurrection, which is extraordinary for a yeah. number of reasons. I yeah. think some people might be put off by the pace and the deliberateness of it. And I also think there's some people who might be put off by the fact that every 10 minutes it can, it could falter and resort to Hollywood cliche but it never does. Yeah. You always think you know where it's going. And then Tim Roth shows up and you had no idea where it was going. And the other film 
which I think is its spiritual cousin, is called Men. Which I have not seen. And I went into Men knowing nothing. I think we, again, it's it's October and this looks interesting. And Men got my award for the year for, oh, it went there. Because it follows this path and it gets weirder and weirder. And you sit there and you say, there's no way this could get any more weird. And then it gets weirder Mm -hmm. by an order of three. Um, I don't want to give any of it away, but it's about a young woman who just got out of a bad relationship. And she rents a place in England to stay for a few weeks. And the town is rather odd. I'll leave it at that. It is so creepy. It is so scary. Um, It has jump scares. It has uncanny valley. It has, where is this going? And then it satisfies you in terms of where it's going. Um, Just extraordinary. And both of those films have a lot of themes in common. Specifically, I think the way that many men don't understand anything about what it's like to be a woman in modern society. Okay. And I think both of those films explore that. Um, I've had discussions with my wife because being a male, um, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. And um, some of the stories she's told me from her and her friends, um, it doesn't sound easy and it doesn't speak Um, It doesn't speak well of certain aspects of society, but man, if you want to talk about two films that deal with these issues in a very entertaining fashion, I mean, you really liked Resurrection, right? I love it. Yeah. Yes. And I think it too uh, could win the uh, Hunter Hunter award for, uh, Hey, it went there. Right. The, the original film, the Ur film, um, that I've always used as, oh, it went there, um, is The Rapture. Oh, sure. Which back when it came out, I was like, well, there's no way they're going right, to, oh, no, right. no, it's a movie. We can go anywhere. So if you're really in the mood uh, to feel shitty for an extended period of time, <laughs> um, especially if you're an American man, I would suggest a men resurrection double feature, <laughs> but have an intermission where you you give yourself some time to contribute money to women's charities <laughs> between the two films so you can feel better about yourself. I don't want to I don't want to make this joke downplay how great these two films are. And I feel like spoiling something about men, but I won't because I want our listeners to discover it for themselves. There's something very interesting going on um, in the casting of men. That was I will say if I'm reading it correctly, uh, reading what you're saying correctly, that was given away in the trailer. Cause all I saw was a trailer. I think maybe we watched it very late at night or okay. maybe I'm just not that intelligent. I didn't figure it out until halfway through the movie. Oh, really? It completely, it completely tricked me for lack of a better word. Okay. Um, that being said, if you like Rory Kinnear from the James Bond films, um, you doesn't? should check out. You should check out Men. What? And who doesn't? 
Who doesn't walk away from the Bond well, film saying a, that Rory Kinnear deserves it's a work it's a workman roles. It's a workmanlike performance in the Bond films, but every time I see Rory Kinnear, I think about his dad, who was like one of my Greg favorite Kinnear. character actors from the not Greg Kinnear. Uh Roy Kinnear from the Beatles films and uh the Richard Lester films. And he was always so great. In fact, he's Mr. Salt in um Willy Walk and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. Um, Resurrection is streaming on Shutter, and Men is available for like digital rental or whatever. I still need to, which is, I believe, how we saw it. Um, Wait till very late at night and turn all the lights off, and Men will freak you the fuck out. (laughs) I keep hearing things about the ending, and I have not heard what the ending is, but it seems very divisive. So that is making me want to see it before it gets spoiled for me. And I will not spoil it for you because any way that I could find to describe what's on the screen, you would think I'm making up. (laughs) It is, it is so far. It might just be the most rapture moment in a movie. That's not the rapture. It's like my wife and I, this seldom happens. We sat there in our viewing room with our mouths open. Wow. We, we, we couldn't believe. Wait, is wait. <laughs> um, one of the one of the great film watching moments of the year uh, when the two of us are watching the end of Men. Uh, my second to last underrated pick is a movie that you and I did a Patreon episode on, and that is Rob Zombie's The Monsters, which I found to be charming. And pleasant and cute and sometimes funny, never like hilariously funny, but I enjoyed it as both a fan of the Munsters and as a fan of Rob Zombie's films because his stock company all gets to have a lot of fun playing these parts. You get somebody like Richard Brake, who's one of the scariest people alive in Rob Zombie movies, being really, really funny in two roles in the Munsters. Um, in fact, everybody gets to play more than one role because they didn't want to keep flying actors over to Budapest uh, during I COVID. Also, I was going to say, I also place that firmly under the COVID film that yes. I was talking about before. Um, when Richard Brake plays the Nosferatu-inspired character, I think every single one of his lines made me laugh. Yeah. Um, my only quibble about the Munsters is the first sequence goes on a little bit long. Sure. And once we get to the second sequence where they're courting, and then of course the third sequence where they're in America, the pace picks up. Um, it's too long. The whole movie is too long for sure. If you judiciously trim 20 minutes from the first hour, you'd have something that was even more like the TV show. Cause it would be paced like the TV show. Right. But um all of the nonsense and the Sturm and Drang and the conversation on Twitter. And this, this goes back to October. We talked about this. I wondered if people had seen the TV show. <laughs> it's like they were Rob Zombie is going to recast the Holy Grail. Will he do it? No, 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 no. It was this silly sitcom where Universal cashed in again on their Universal Monsters. Um and it had the advantage of having all these old pros in it 
And so it sort of comes across when I watch the Munsters, it's like you're watching a community theater group that's been together for decades, especially <laughs> Al Lewis. And you can hand them anything and they will put it over right. with with a plum. It's the definition of being a, a professional. I mean, Yvonne DiCarlo had been a Hollywood actress for decades. She's in the Ten Commandments for Christ's <laughs> sake. And question whether she should take Lily because she right. felt it was a step down. But Fred Gwynn, it's the definition of professional actors. Which I, of course you know. it was nice to see Dan Roebuck because Roebuck has such affection for Universal Monster stuff that this is obviously his wet dream of a role. And, and he uh, falls into that category that you're talking about, where it's like if you give Daniel Roebuck something to do, he's going to put it over. The only thing the Munsters is missing is Dana Gould. I cannot for the yeah, life of me yeah. understand why Dana Gould <laughs> did not in some way. I mean, even like a narrator that they did right. in, in the United States or something that he needs to have his thumbprint on the movie. Well, he should have played uh, Lily's brother, the werewolf. What's his name? Uh, yes. I can't remember his name. Uh, Lester. Lester. There we go. Uncle Lester. And I also um, gave the movie credit for for bringing back Lester and bringing back Uncle Gil and Wonder of Wonder, Miracle of Miracles, Zombo? Are yeah. you kidding? Zombo is in one fucking episode of the TV series. And I only know Zombo because he's my favorite character in the entire show. It was Louis Nye yeah. uh, pretending to be a horror host. And thanks to Rob Zombie, in my office, I now have a seven-inch Zombo action figure. Do you think that was going to be produced for any reason other than zombie taking an interest. Yeah. Uh, if you want to hear I us talk that. more about the monsters, like I said, yeah. if you're a Patreon subscriber, there's a whole episode about the monsters, but because we can go on and on. Yeah. And I just, I thought it was sweet and cute and very colorful and not worth a lot of the hate that it got. And it's on Netflix. Not at all. Speaking of the hate that it got, um, I saw, Hold on, it's coming to me. He was on The Office, and then later he was in in Glorious Bastards. B.J. Novak. I saw B.J. Novak on a late-night talk show talking about a film he had made mm -hmm. that I hadn't heard of. Mm -hmm. So I watched the film, and it was so much better than I was expecting. And again, like all these streaming things, it's in the conversation for a week, and then it drops out. The film is called Vengeance. Yeah. And it's really, really good and really intelligent and has some interesting twists because we start where we think we know where this is going again and we think we know who the B.J. Novak character is and then it completely shifts and the performances are amazing and it says a lot about grief and revenge and I thought it was the nice political allegory that didn't hit you over the head, but it talked about the divide in this country right. and where the two teams are in a very subtle, entertaining way. Yeah. Um, it's a great movie, and I wish more people would see it. Yeah, it's. I want to say I watched that on Peacock. I think that's still streaming on Peacock. Those of you who subscribe can check it out because that is – I think like the definition of an underrated movie where it came out Blumhouse put it out, Universal put it out, like 
And it played in theaters. Yeah, it was it was, you know, quote unquote, given a chance. And yet it just flew completely under the radar. And the people who saw it almost stumbled upon it by accident and were treated to something that was very different than what the trailers were advertising. That was smarter and probably funnier, although it's not, you know, you go into it it, it, because they're advertising written and directed by BJ Novak. So of course you think, well, it's the office. He's a comedy guy. This is going to be a comedy, right? There's comic stuff in it, but I wouldn't classify the movie necessarily. He's got a lot lot more on his mind. I don't think the film was helped by its title. Sure. Because I think maybe some people sort of thought it was a death wish type of thing based on the poster. Right. Um, I will say this. It's got the most interesting Ashton Kutcher performance I've ever seen in it. Well, I mean, number one would be Dude, Where's My Car? But number two, Vengeance. <laughs> he wants to know where his car is. No, I I really thought Kutcher was doing something very interesting in that film. For sure. We might call it the long game. <laughs> um, again, like... Um, like Marsha Gay Harden in, in Confess Fletch... Ashton Kutcher is just one of the many delights to be found in in Vengeance. And the film is full of interesting things. If you like movies that aren't like every other movie you've seen this year. Right. Yeah. Great pick. Uh, My last pick is another Western because again, we got a few this year and they're worth pointing out. Um, And this one was, I think, immediately written off because its filmmaker is in, I guess, sort of the late stages of his career. But this is this is the year we got a new movie by Walter Hill and it's called Dead for a Dollar. It stars Christoph Waltz as sort of a bounty hunter who is hired by I'm trying to remember his name, Hamish Linklater from Midnight Mass. Mm -hmm. Uh, to bring back his wife, Rachel Brosnahan, from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, who has been kidnapped and taken into Mexico. And um, Willem Dafoe also plays sort of a guy who's chasing after Christoph Waltz uh, because he put him in jail. And it's interesting to see the two of them square off because they're both very small men. And you rarely get to see a Western <laughs> about two small men engaged in battle with one another. Um, again, it is flawed, mostly constrained, I would argue, by budget, because Walter Hill still knows how to make a movie. It's just that he's not given the resources to make the movies that he made in the 70s and the 80s. Um, it's dedicated to... Oh, son of a bitch. I don't want to mess it up. Um, Famous Western director of the 1950s, not John Ford, not... Bud Bodicher? Yes, thank you. Uh, It's direct, it's dedicated, and it it makes sense when you see the movie, because this feels like a Bud Bodicher movie that, you know, never existed. Um, It seems like it's worth seeing just for the cast. My God, how did this slip under my radar? For sure. Um, and it has some interesting things to say about like women and people of color who are not often focused on in Westerns. They'll, they'll appear in Westerns, but here they're sort of central focal points. Um, 
in a way that in most Westerns, they are not. And it talks about sort of their plight during this time. And uh, it goes to some really interesting places. I think it's really worth seeing. Again, as long as you're not expecting a new Walter Hill masterpiece, but instead sort of a late period budget constrained Walter Hill movie, it's it's really good. And a couple weeks ago, I went with Jake to the New Beverly and saw The Getaway. Walter Hill wrote that, right? Correct. He adapted it from the book. And that's when we start to see what he was capable of. Um, Currently, Willem Dafoe is starring in one of my favorite Internet memes. (laughs) It has to do with celebrating the holidays. And on the left side of the screen, it says Christmas if you live in the Midwest. And it's a picture of Willem Dafoe from the lighthouse with all these clothes on and a coat and a he's got a beard and a hat and everything. And then Christmas season, if you live on the West Coast, and it's a picture of Willem Dafoe from The Life Aquatic with Steve's suit. Very nice. Right is. <laughs> uh, Dead for a Dollar is available for digital rental and probably at like red boxes and stuff. And I am literally writing films down that I will use in January when Jan says, we've now seen Mad, 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 <laughs> Mad World. Um, I discovered, because there are many websites devoted to the film run by people who are obsessed with it, as I am, that one single scene in Mad, 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 Mad World uh, was filmed in Oxnard, where I live now. Uh, and I plan on driving out there and seeing okay. if the location still looks the same. It's the one scene with Buster Keaton. Okay. Uh, the cars take a turn in Malibu and through the magic of the movies, when we cut, they're suddenly 30 miles away in Oxnard. Hmm. And it's the scene where uh, Spencer Tracy pulls into a garage. In any case, my final underrated film got a theatrical release And every time I went to the local theater that we go to now, I saw the poster and I was like, what is this? The poster doesn't give very much away. And then I discovered that it was free to stream, I think, on Amazon. Don't quote me. And it's called Spirited. Uh, Apple TV. And it's with uh, Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. And I think they were trying to keep this a secret, although I don't know if I ever saw a trailer. It's a musical. Mm-hmm. It's a musical update of A Christmas Carol. And I thought it was delightful. Just, wow, this could have been a, a quick cash in because both of them like to sing or something. I'm assuming you've seen it. I have, yeah. And I'm guessing you didn't like it as much as I did. Not, I, I didn't dislike it. I just, I had that word content in my head the whole time. But I agree with you, like... It is not phoned in. They they spent money on it. They there's musical numbers are really amazing sets. Yes, absolutely. There's a musical number in the middle of it called "Good Afternoon." That's like one for the ages. It's yeah. very clever. Yeah. Um, the one quibble I had was there's a musical number that should be in the movie proper because it explains something, and they clearly cut it for length. But then they were so proud of it, they show it over the end credits. And as you're watching the end credits, as you always should, if you've been watching the movie with any interest, you're like, well, that explains this. That needs to be. So I don't know how that happened, Um, but it's 
as interesting an update on A Christmas Carol as Scrooged was. And I think it's interesting that, correct me if I'm wrong, when Scrooged came out, it was not a success. I don't believe it was. But it's slowly being hocus pocused and a Christmas <laughs> storied. Not that those two films are similar, but that yeah. that television can turn anything into something over the holidays by showing it enough. Um, I think now, maybe because generally movies aren't as good as they were back then, the appeal of Scrooge is more obvious. I'm not claiming it's a perfect movie or even a great movie, but I think Scrooge is a good movie. It's a little busy. There's a whole lot going on. And someone sat down with Scrooge. In fact, I know who it was. It was, uh, what's his name from SNL? Because he wrote Michael it. Michael Doherty, yeah. Um, that someone sat down with a Christmas carol and said, there aren't enough subplots in this. <laughs> but um, again, it doesn't wear out its welcome. It's very pleasant. It's uh, The musical numbers are great. If anything, yeah. there's a stretch in the middle with no musical numbers where you kind of need one extra, but it was one of my most pleasant surprises of the year. Nice. That's awesome. I felt, you know, like, like the monsters had they cut out about 20 to 30 minutes. Cause it runs like two ten, I think. Um, Because every movie does now it's, this is not a problem that's specific to spirited. Uh, It would have been a little bit better you know, cut out some of the spaces between the musical numbers. Yeah, because the musical numbers carry it. And I love the attention to detail. There's a big musical number at the end that takes place. I believe we're in Times Square and everyone is singing and dancing. And oh, my God, I think there's fake snow and it's very busy. And in the background, there's a city bus. And on that thing on the front of the bus that shows where it's going. Yeah, it's the lyrics of the song. Are, oh, I didn't notice that. And it's like, wow, whoever sat down and said, well, you know, we could have the lyrics on the bus. That's, I love that kind of thing. And it was it was great that, that the film is full of stuff like that. Was that directed by anyone of note? Um, I'm I looking it up remember. right now. Yeah, I don't either. Sean Anders, who also co-wrote it. I'll tell you who deserves credit. Um, whoever choreographed it, the choreography is... Like Broadway level, we, my wife and I thought the same thing about Spirited that we thought about Schmigadoon, <laughs> that because of COVID, this streaming movie is the Broadway tryout, that both of these properties right, will right, eventually right. go to Broadway. And with Spirited, it's, it's done. That it's, it's, it's a Broadway show. Yeah, pretty much. I'm trying to look up who did the choreography. I want to say it was Mandy Moore, but I could be wrong. Amazing. Uh, really? Not not, cool. not Mandy, Mandy Moore, the singer. There's a famous oh. choreographer named Mandy Moore. Uh, uh, it's not showing up for me. But Sean Anders, who directed the movie, is famous for working with Will Ferrell on a couple of other comedies, including That's My... Oh, not That's My Boy. That's the Adam Sandler one. He did Daddy's Home, and he did... Oh, he's a writer of Daddy's Home and Instant Family. He wrote the Daddy's Home movies. Uh, okay, well, this is his redemption because this is much better than those. <laughs> and, Horrible um, Bosses 2. 
Yeah, there's nothing in his resume. I mean, everything in his resume suggests, you know, middling comedy. Nothing says big budget musical. So that's impressive. And Will Ferrell and uh, Ryan Reynolds both commit. And I really, really like the aspect that, uh, spoiler alert, Ryan Reynolds is the bad guy, quote unquote. But the film actually gives him a chance several times to explain why it is that he feels the way he does and acts the way he does, Mm -hmm. which we don't often get in versions of A Christmas Carol. Right. And I thought his uh, the job that they came up with for him. Yeah. What the way he makes his money is very uh, 2022. Yes, but also very much in the spirit of Dickens in terms of ooh, really. <laughs> um, all right. So I, I started out the show saying we don't really do overrated anymore and that I had kind of found a workaround. Um, and my workaround is directors I like making movies I I didn't. And I think the closest I can come is that even though it's a mouthful, and I don't know if we want to call this podcast, the underrated, the ugly, and not for me. Not for me. Yeah. Uh, my first not for me, you already brought up, I think on this podcast, or maybe it was before we started recording. I think it, it was actually before we started recording. It is David O. Russell's Amsterdam. And um, I think I like David O. Russell more than you do. I haven't liked a David O. Russell movie since 1999. No, I liked I liked I Heart Huckabees, which was like 2002. You did not like American Hustle. No, I thought it was Diet Scorsese, which which I like a lot. And obviously, I think everyone agreed that his best film is Three Kings. Yes. But um. I agree with you. I went I went into Amsterdam with very high expectations, not just because of the cast, but what it seemed to be about, because the film falls all over itself. I would say this is a spoiler, but I don't think it is in that. The heart of Amsterdam is about a true incident where. It's either, is it in the wake of World War I or World War II? World, I'm sorry, World War I. Right. That there was a cabal of very rich people in this country who wanted to overthrow the democratically elected government and go with fascism. Right. And even though the film is full of nonsense and filigree, that actually happened. That actually happened in this country. And... It seemed like David O. Russell wanted to make a film about that, but he didn't want to make a film about that because it's a film that's full of nonsense with these three characters running around and they're having a contest to see who could be the most quirky. There's it's it was sort of advertised as a comedy. It's not a comedy. It just it it asks that David O. Russell question. Uh, what if there were famous people and fills the cast with recognizable, talented actors who, again, are sort of stranded with nothing to do. So they have to invent quirk and nonsense. Um, 
And of course, none more so of, than Christian Bale. I was going to say the king of these things is Christian Bale, <laughs> who says, uh, I want to be overweight and bald in American Hustle because I am neither overweight nor bald. And that works out so well that in Amsterdam, he says, I want to have one eye. <laughs> I misspoke. I liked uh, The Fighter also. So I guess I just haven't liked the last two David O. Russell movies. And I don't really like David O. Russell as a human being. And, uh, and I would say that, that again, maybe not overrated, maybe not directors you used to like, maybe not not for me. Maybe the, the, the new third category should be a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. It's a mess. My first what we used to call overrated film, but now God knows what we're going to call it Mm. um, defines a mess. And I think there's things to like in it. And I think what a lot of people responded to was the messiness, but ultimately I think it's a mess. And I recognize that a lot of people love this film, everything, everywhere, all at once. It just got to the point where it was so busy and it was so far up its own ass for the sake of being up its own ass that I, I, I was protecting my, I was, I just gave up on it. Yeah. And I liked the performances. I liked yeah, the performances for sure. a lot and the whole concept of it. I like too, but it seemed that it was too clever by half. And when we get to hot dog fingers, I checked out. Yeah, that's not for me, I think, is a great category for everything, everywhere, all at once. I admired its ambition. I admired its willingness to be weird. uh, And the fact that it connected with so many people, I think, was huge. Like, pretty wide audiences got into this movie that asks them to go to some bizarre places. I was very excited for a little while because it seemed like Michelle Yeoh was sort of a lock for Best Actress. Yeah. And I was really excited about living in a world where Michelle Yeoh won Best Actress. And then Kate Blanchett showed up in Tar and fucked everything up. Um, and you just a minute ago called American Hustle, what, Diet Scorsese? Yeah. I would call everything, everywhere, all at once, Diet Charlie Kaufman. Sure. It's definitely. It has all the affectation. Same, yeah. But none of the cleverness in the internal logic. Uh, I saw at least two movies that were Diet Charlie Kaufman this year, and I can't remember one of them, but one of them will be on this list. Uh, My next, This is a Mess and Not for Me, is a movie you haven't seen yet, but are going to see today. And that is Damien Chazelle's Babylon. Unless what you say in the next two minutes convinces me to save my money. I do not want to be the person who talks you out of seeing it because I think everybody should see it. Uh, it seems like it would be right up my alley. Sure. Um, it opens spoilers with an elephant shitting. And I felt like, well, that's as much as the movie has to say. Um, and then there's three <laughs> hours and 10 minutes that follow. But the elephant shitting really sums everything up. Um Margot Robbie gives her all. Brad Pitt is charming because he's Brad Pitt. Uh, I I got the impression watching the movie that Damien Chazelle saw Singing in the Rain and Boogie Nights and said, okay, I'm ready. And (laughs) that's Babylon. It didn't connect with me. Other people are naming it as one of their favorite movies of the year. 
more power to them. I found it to be shrill and messy. And I commented on the next film on the website. And I was happy that some people responded to this because I went into the film with high hopes. And again, not knowing very much about it. And I think people are responding to the film's intentions rather than the film itself. And the film is called She Said. Uh, And it's about the Harvey Weinstein case. And I think we can all agree that Harvey Weinstein was a monster and did horrible, horrible things for way too long. That's not in dispute. The film, however, as I've said several times, comes across like an ABC after-school special version of All the President's Men. And I appreciate some of the things it's doing, that it very subtly reveals that these two journalists had very supportive home lives that allowed them to do the work that they did. And spoiler alert, a big star who was really involved in the Harvey Weinstein case shows up playing herself and made me think, well, I've always liked that actress, but now she's a hero to me because at a, at a crucial time, she was one of the few who would who would stand up and be counted. But it is not a good film uh, for a number of reasons. It plods along and doesn't just, give the actresses very much to do. It's so um, inert and dramatically. Yeah, I thought the most interesting performance in the entire film, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this makes me a misogynist, it's um, the male who worked for the Weinstein Company who meets with Zoe Kazan at the restaurant. And he's a character actor, and he's been in everything. And do you remember his name? I don't, but I know exactly who you're talking about. And he's only in two scenes in the movie, and he does a really good job conveying um, moral uncertainty and guilt mm-hmm. that she makes him see that he was part of this and now it's time for him to do the right thing. Um, and I And I actually thought those two scenes worked, but the rest of it just seemed to be that it was a book that the filmmakers admired Right. And they weren't able to capture the book, um, which made me sad because it is an important topic and I'm not diminishing the subject matter. I just thought the film was mediocre. I agree with everything you said, and and I'm disappointed by that uh, because, like you, I wanted this to be, you know, we're still sort of waiting for I, I talked about this when I talked about the movie on a recent podcast. Um because I feel like we're still waiting for Hollywood to make the definitive yes. sort of times up movie because they because tried that it. Certainly wasn't bombshell either. That was the other one I was going to mention. And did you see the assistant two yeah. years ago? Mm-hmm. That's the closest we've come. And that's very much from the indie world, not the Hollywood world. But uh, she said is very much a sort of glossy Hollywood take with movie stars and I just was thinking of Spotlight the whole time and thinking about how good Spotlight was at dramatizing journalism and sort of a sea change and how she said just never figures out how to do it. And as Ebert was never shy about pointing out, Hollywood always has a problem with journalism because we always get the scene where the guy keeps putting paper in the typewriter. <laughs> 
And again, she said, not only makes you realize what a masterpiece all the president's men is. After I saw, she said, I, I think I have all the president's men on my movies anywhere account. And I watched that again and was nice. blown away by it. But also yeah. like you said, uh, what a masterpiece spotlight is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next for me, when directors I like make movies, I don't is Andrew Dominic's blonde. The loose biopic of Marilyn Monroe, played by Ana de Armas, the made-for-Netflix NC-17 black-and-white epic that is not a movie I liked at all. It seems to have one thing to say about Marilyn Monroe. She was exploited and a sex object, and just says that for close to three hours. Uh, it has scenes that are so insane, like where Marilyn Monroe's aborted fetus is talking to her and saying, I want to live, mommy, uh, that you can't believe were put on screen. <laughs> um, I just I, I like Andrew Dominic a lot. I like uh, killing them softly a whole lot. I think the assassination assassination of Jesse James is like a flat out masterpiece. I, I was really looking forward to Blonde. And boy, I just did not connect with any of it. For months, my son, who has exquisite taste, was badgering me, trying to get me to watch it. I don't know why. And the reason I haven't watched it yet is the same reason that I've never seen The Last Temptation of, I'm I'm sorry, wrong film, uh, the Mel Gibson Jesus movie. Ah, uh, yes. I haven't seen that one either. The Passion and that of the Christ. Was the Passion of the Christ. Uh, apologies to Martin Scorsese. I like Jesus. I think Jesus had a lot of good things to say about treating other people decently. And I didn't want to see a movie where for two and a half hours, people kick the shit out of him. I had a problem watching Jesus be beat up for two hours. And I also have an affection for Marilyn Monroe because she was a delightful actress, especially in Some Like It Hot. And I didn't want to watch a long black and white movie where she's abused in various ways, focusing on that unfortunate part of her career. So might I one day see both of these films? Perhaps. But this year I said, I'm not up to it. Yeah. And you said um, that they sort of focused on this sort of one note portrayal of Marilyn as a victim yes and that was my problem with my next messy picture which again a lot of people are putting on their 10 best list and the film is called Elvis and I have a problem with it because I am a big Elvis fan mm -hmm. and it almost seemed like the only way that um oh I'm losing it um, the wonderful director of Moulin Rouge. Baz Luhrmann. The only way Baz Luhrmann could get financing was to actually have Elvis in the movie performing because people like to see Elvis sing. My God, it's Elvis. But what he really wanted to make was a film about the colonel. And if you only focus on the colonel, that's a much harder uh, thing to sell. So we have this crazy Tom Hanks performance in a <laughs> fat suit. And then we have... The Elvis stuff. And again, I'm not expecting a biopic to be completely accurate. 
But some of the liberties Elvis takes with the truth are problematic. But at the heart of it is you have to believe that Elvis was this candide figure who had very little idea what Colonel Parker was doing on his behalf. And for a number of reasons, that doesn't work, both dramatically in the film or in terms of it jibing with reality. Halfway through Elvis, which is a long film. Yes, it is. It occurred to me that in the spirit of other uh, Baz Luhrmann films, this Elvis would have been much more successful. I think I've bounced this off you before. What if we made Elvis's life story as if it were an Elvis movie from the 60s? Stylize it like that, like Mm -hmm. One Night in Hollywood. That would have been entertaining and shorter. And uh, Colonel Parker could have still been the villain. (laughs) Um, What Elvis chose to focus on for long stretches of time and what it left out, I just found inexplicable. Uh, Things they glossed over, I thought would have been dramatic highlights of the story. And what they really spent time on, I thought could be dismissed. But this might just be a case of me being such an Elvis fan that no film would have satisfied me. Yeah, it's, I had the same reaction. So I just rewatched it on Christmas Eve because I was sick and uh, locked in my bedroom while we had company for Christmas Eve. I couldn't be celebrating. I had to be upstairs in my room quarantined. I don't have COVID. Um, but, uh, so I was quarantined up in my room and I put Elvis on cause it's on HBO max and I wanted to give it a second chance cause I didn't love it the first time. And I found myself wanting to love it again and just constantly being pushed out of it by the Baz Luhrmann of it all. And the Colonel Parker of it all, which isn't a, the fault of Tom Hanks, although it's a bizarre performance, but he just keeps fucking talking about snowmen and snow jobs. Yes. It just keeps going back to that. <laughs> I'm I'm very taken with the Austin Butler performance. I love all the music that is like Elvis music, not when he brings in weird hip hop covers of Elvis or when he's playing, you know, Toxic by Britney Spears or whatever. Um, but the, the main takeaway that I had when I saw it in the summer and when I watched it again on Christmas Eve was I feel like watching a bunch of Elvis movies now instead of really appreciating what he did. It's, I, I find it to be a mess. Like you said, it is on a lot of 10 best lists. I think Austin Butler is kind of a lock for an Oscar nomination. Uh, but I, the movie still doesn't work for me. Shortly after I moved, when I was uh, sort of feeling homesick, although my wife and I keep wondering what we should call what where we used to live, because if we say home, that's not home anymore. So I think we've decided on Schaumburg. In any case, I was feeling Schaumburg sick for Schaumburg because Hmm. I lived there for almost 60 years. And Turner Classic Movies came through in the pinch. And they showed it happened at the World's Fair. Nice. Which I instantly decried, not decried, I instantly decreed on the Twitter machine is the perfect film to have on in the background, (laughs) no matter what you're doing or where you are. And then I was so taken with it, I bought the Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, Because again, if you're going to make a biopic about a man 
who was one of the most effortless entertainers of the 20th century, maybe the film should be more effortlessly entertaining. And Elvis, the movie, is constantly reminding you of all the heavy lifting it's doing as it goes along. The short shrift it gives to his original Hollywood span all the movies he made one after another. It's one little scene. Yeah. It was inexplicable to me. It was a montage. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. I know there's very little attention paid to roust about to uh, (laughs) change of habit, (laughs) change of habit, which I do own on (laughs) Blu-ray. Paramount just put blue Hawaii out on 4k. And, uh, what was it? I think after a marathon of some sort, or maybe at your house or something, I I purchased Clambake. Yeah, Clambake rules. Because once you hear the song Clambake, <laughs> you can't get the song Clambake out of your head. It's amazing how few good Elvis songs are in Elvis movies. I still remember one of our trips to Vegas. We had lunch <clears throat> at the Flamingo. And there's a part of the Flamingo that they haven't changed very much from the 60s. And we're sitting there eating lunch and I'm looking through these huge windows. And all of a sudden I said, it's Viva Las Vegas. <gasps> there's That's where that's where Anne Margaret works in OMG. Viva Las Vegas. And maybe as a tribute to it, they haven't changed it much. But it was like visiting a holy shrine. It was like, oh, Viva Las Vegas was filmed here. <laughs> um. My next uh, director, I like making a movie I didn't, falls under the same category as David O. Russell, where I have to ask myself, maybe I don't like this director. And that is Noah Baumbach's latest film, White Noise, which he made for Netflix. Which just um, came out. Which just came out. And again, I had, I, I'm had i questioning myself because I'm like, I don't think I've liked a Noah Baumbach movie since The Squid and the Whale. And I was texting with Adam about it. And he said, well, no, Francis Ha was good. I said, yeah, you're right. And mar- there's a lot to like in Marriage Story. It just wasn't the movie for me. Um, I don't know what he's trying to do in White Noise. It's based on a book by Don DeLillo. It's meant to be anxiety-inducing and sort of socially satirical i found it to be neither uh adam driver and greta gerwig play this couple in early 80s america who are just trying to like live their lives and there's a weird pollution cloud that's moving in greta gerwig is taking mysterious pills i don't even know how to describe the plot of this movie none greta of it gerwig has me. a perm she does have a perm because hey, it's everyone the 80s. did Everyone did in the 80s. Adam Driver has a receding hairline. Um, I would say watch it for the end credits because the end credits are spectacular. They're like a dance number in a grocery store that is more entertaining than anything that happens in the two hours and 15 minutes prior. Oh, wow. I, I, I This movie just did not work for me at all. But again, it's showing up on 10 best lists. This is a movie that people are connecting to. So I recognize I am the problem. My final not for me film. And I will keep this short. And I will try to see the glass as half full. Oh, you son of a bitch. Because it's half. The glass is half full of water, you see. <laughs> and water is a big part of this film. Um, 
I was not a fan of the original Avatar movie. And in the spirit of not wanting to be the curmudgeon who comes on this podcast with his arms folded and gleefully screams that he has not seen Avatar Way of Water, I went to see Avatar Way of Water. Not for me, but I will say this. I appreciate how he's advancing the technology. I was very impressed by the technology. The 3D was amazing. I have this quirk where most 3D movies, after about an hour, it just stops. It just maybe eye fatigue sure. or something, yeah. but that didn't certain that certainly didn't happen, and it didn't give me a headache. And I so appreciate it because back when I had a TV who could do it, I would watch a lot of these remastered 3D archive 1950s right. 3D films to to enjoy old school OG 3D that. Cameron is smart enough that there are extended sequence sequences where there's stuff in the air, like embers, mm-hmm. and bugs and bubbles and things, which enhances the 3D. And very often there's something in the foreground, which also in, enhances the 3D. So I like that a lot. Um, I question the middle section, which is an hour of it's fun to swim. <laughs> He's not wrong. Um, I also thought that by having co-writers, he avoided um, his Achilles heel, which is sometimes clumsy dialogue. Yeah. And I wondered if maybe <laughs> Way of Water would be the stepping stone to the next film where we would get a little bit more nuance in terms of good and evil. Mm-hmm. We're still in a place where that's, very narrowly defined yeah um although i saw hints that maybe it would get a little bit more nuanced Mm -hmm. Um, i understand your feelings about this holy film i believe in the first week you saw it 18 times (laughs) only only twice only twice oh i thought you saw it three times no um i have to ask how did the kids react to it they liked it a lot even rosie okay yeah. I was I was wondering if Rosie fell asleep. Rosie had she well yeah she did for a little while because she always does doesn't matter what the movie is. Um, she has never seen Avatar, but when it ended and I thought she was bored out of her mind. Honestly, she said I really liked that. Yeah, I think all of the stuff about family mm-hmm. is very wonderful things that young people should see because I think it's nice things for for young people to see. So I certainly didn't hate it, and I agree. The Twitter opinion I'm seeing more than any other, besides people who think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, is that there's a lot of people who didn't like the first one who liked the second one. Sure. And I I think the second one is better. I was amazed uh, at one of the voices that Sigourney Weaver does. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not aware of the Kate Winslet role until mm-hmm. after I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. I thought all that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I have one more uh, director I like making a movie I didn't, and that is Clerks 3. Perhaps my most, not I won't say heartbreaking experience of a movie this year, but uh, I was I was disappointed because I'm always rooting for Kevin Smith and because I like these characters and I like his Clerks movies and I think it's interesting in sort of the way that Linkletter keeps going back to the Before Sunrise series 
I thought, well, Kevin Smith could perhaps keep going back to these Clerks movies and saying something about where he is in his life and his career. And he sort of tries to do that by reconciling with his heart attack. But then he proceeds to just say things that he's said better in other movies for the remainder of Clerks 3. I I thought there was a lot in Clerks 3 that was almost bafflingly bad, but I'm kind of alone in that. Um, you're you're not alone in that. Okay. Well, I know um, me, Rob, and Adam were like texting furiously when we saw it because we were like, what the hell? Uh, but I know a lot of the online reaction I saw was very affectionate towards the movie. Now, did you stream it or did you go to a theater? I had a screener. I went to a theater that was full of Kevin Smith fans. Sure. So that sort of affected my first viewing of it. And um, I thought it was fun. But ever since then, when I go back and think about the movie, um, I agree with you 100% because I thought Clerks 2 did some very interesting things with the characters, Mm -hmm. especially in terms of the fast food thing. And then there was that wonderful musical number in the middle of it that I really, really liked. But Clerks 3, to me, seemed to be Kevin Smith on fumes, Kevin Smith once again almost exploiting his medical adventure for something. And also it came across like it wasn't written by Kevin Smith. It came across like fan fiction. (laughs) Yeah. It's very strange how sort of stuck in the making of the original clerks. He seems to be. Yes. But that's, that's it. I have, I have a couple other movies that, I would consider movies I didn't like from directors I do, but I had to move them into the ugly category. So And and Clerks 3 appears in my ugly category. Oh, okay. I was trying to be nice by just keeping it in my not for me. <laughs> so so not to dwell um in the cesspool. Yeah. Let's make short work of this. Yeah. In my opinion, if some of our listeners who've been listening to me drone on and on for 13 years give me any credit whatsoever for being able to triage this crazy caravan. I think the following films you should avoid. Okay. I think your life will be made better. If instead of going to these movies, you made yourself a sandwich (laughs) and went to a public park and sat on a bench and just ate your sandwich and enjoyed the (laughs) afternoon. I think that would be better use of your time. But maybe that's just me. I'm old. I'm going to die soon. No, some of these movies, I would agree with that. And I'm saying that as a Chicagoan, it's negative 20 here. But I still think you should go outside and eat a sandwich, then watch some of these. Um, Jurassic World Dominion is bad. Yeah. And it's a waste of time. And here's why. It was pitched as... What if we got the original cast and the reboot cast together? Okay. But once that happens, which takes an hour and 15 minutes, the film has nothing for them to do and nothing interesting for them to say. Nope. It's it's, it's inexplicable. It's like, let's have a high school reunion. And when people get there, the gym is locked. <laughs> also, who could... <sighs> No offense to those of you who do, but I just who could possibly have affection for the new cast? <laughs> like, if you like Chris Pratt, fine. I really like Bryce Dallas Howard, but like in terms of the characters that they're playing, 
is anyone so excited for them to finally meet up with Dr. Ellen, Alan Grant or Ellie Sattler or like, I just, it's like, um, I don't have a good metaphor for it, so never mind. I'll and by up. going with this high concept, and this thought is not original to me, I remember Adam Risky bringing this up at the time. The previous Jurassic World movie, the one that ends with dinosaurs in a haunted house, yep. started advancing the narrative notion of a, a human being with dinosaur DNA. Correct. And that's completely abandoned because this one had the idea to reunite the cast. And I'm not saying that concept would have paid off, but I was sort of interested to see them try, and that's just abandoned in this one. The second movie also ends with dinosaurs being let loose into society, basically, and suggests a Jurassic world in which man and dinosaur much co must coexist. And this movie also abandons that, in favor of locusts. Oh boy. And then I learned that they remade Firestarter. You've just knocked off the first two on my list. So thank you. And I watched it and I asked why, <laughs> because as I pointed out last week, the Drew Barrymore Firestarter is not the greatest movie ever made. Take it easy. But it certainly looks like a masterpiece <laughs> next to this one because this was an exercise in soggy nostalgia. I watched Oof. the new one while the original played in my brain as, oh, that see what they did in the original that was so much better. It it just comes across as um, fun on a budget or trying to I mean, what is the purpose of this other than, oh, we own this IP? That's exactly what it is. And Zac Efron was willing to do it. And we changed the ending a little bit. But all I just thought it was awful. And then trying to get fodder for this very podcast, I sat down two weeks ago and I watched Black Adam. Oh, you, you took one for the team because I have not. And let me tell you, it came out and I guess it didn't do very well. Because The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, had this very funny tweet where he said, well, Black Adam now has something in common with A24 movies. They don't make very much money. <laughs> I think I see what you're saying. But I think you're implying that Black Adam is as accomplished of a movie as some A24 <laughs> releases, which is a logical fallacy that's as big as the DC universe. Um, <laughs> Black Adam is aggressively bad. Although what kept me entertained was, and I think Adam Thoss and Mike Pomero um, could address this better than I could. Was there a period of time where DC was just actively ripping off Marvel or did both of them rip each other off? In comics, you mean? Yes. Uh, I think they probably both ripped each other off. My guess is true comics nerds would say Marvel was ripping off DC. Okay, because in Black Adam, you get a sort of half-baked subplot with what seems to be um, the Avengers, only they're not called the Avengers, and it's not the Justice League, because I the know... Justice Society. Which seems to be the B-League of the Justice League, because I'm watching this film, and again, 
Foss and Pomero can speak to this. I don't know very much about the comic book, but I do know this. I'm watching it and I'm like, Pierce Brosnan is playing a discount Doctor Strange. Right. Doctor Fate. Doctor Fate. And there's another character that seems to be half the Hulk and half (laughs) Ant-Man. And there's another character who's Storm from X-Men, only she's called Cyclone. And it was like watching one of those Bollywood films that rip off Hollywood films. Like you're sitting there just watching to see what they're going to steal next. Right. Just, just, just. Some of these DC characters may have existed before their Marvel counterparts. I do not know the history and some people. Yeah, I don't know which one was first, but I reached the conclusion that maybe Hollywood should just break down and give the credit to the 13th floor directed by the 13th floor (laughs) because that's what we're watching. Um, Any other ugly picks for you? Uh, Two. I went to the theater. In fact, I think this was the first film I went to see after I moved and I was homesick and I was looking forward to a movie theater to make me feel better. And unfortunately, the film I chose to see was Thor Love and Thunder. That's also on my list which was Taika Waititi scribbling things on a cocktail napkin (laughs) and then getting Hollywood to bankroll that to make it into a a feature film. Because it's six movies at once. It's this weird family film about orphans, but then Christian Bale is giving a method performance as Voldemort, and it's... (laughs) It's just the craziest fucking thing you've ever seen. And ultimately, it's like, who plays Thor? Hemsworth? Uh, yeah. Well, he's charming. He'll, right. he'll make it all work. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, the. I, I'm not going to use this as, a, as an opportunity to shit talk Marvel because there's still a lot of good stuff that Marvel's doing. But it's interesting to put Thor Love and Thunder side by side with something like Avatar The Way of Water, because I think Thor Love and Thunder is sort of what passes for Hollywood blockbuster spectacle now. Uh, And it's cheap and it's shot in a Best Buy parking lot in Atlanta. And then you look at Avatar The Way of Water and it's like, no, this is what blockbuster filmmaking could be uh, if everybody were James Cameron, which I know everybody is not. And it just, I think, exposes the lie of Thor Love and Thunder. And my favorite Avatar story so far, which I just remembered, because it is an epic, and it took a really long time to make, um, Edie Falco (laughs) filmed her part four years ago. Yeah. She's in two scenes. And in an interview, she said she thought it had come out and was not a success because she (laughs) didn't hear anything about it. But if you look at the amount of special effects work that had to be done. I mean, the first time we see her, she's in the the loader thing from Aliens and the, the loader hand has the coffee, which is mm. charming. Um, that that the live action on that was shot four years ago. My yeah. God. Yeah. He, My started, God. he started making that movie in 2017, I believe. And then for the final time, Jan could not sit through Mad, 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 Mad World again. <laughs> And so we streamed, I believe this was the title, 
Because when I was preparing last night, I couldn't remember if I had actually seen this film or if I had dreamt it. It's called Marry Me. Also on my list. This and is amazing. I, we have the exact I, same list. And did it come out for Valentine's Day? Was that the... Yeah, I think so. And then it like started streaming see on something. Peacock shortly thereafter. And it's so formulaic and just devoid of human beings or cleverness or it's anything. a weird commercial for jennifer lopez's stardom yeah um so did i see it i, I think it. i did <laughs> he takes his daughter to a concert yeah i mean this was in the trailer like this and asinine premise to... where he holds up a sign that says marry me and she's on stage and says okay um, just, you know, and I like Owen Wilson and he's been through some travails and it was nice to see him in a movie, but man, talk about 90 minutes of my life. I won't get back. Yeah. It's just, to me, it's, and I haven't seen ticket to paradise yet. So maybe that, uh, could also fall into this category, but it is like the Hollywood product romantic comedy version of what we get these days. Whereas, you know, some of those other movies we talked about early in the show are a little bit more, I won't even say original, but just uh, charming than something like marry me. And again, maybe that, you know, you'll love marry me. If you love Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson, I'd like them both enough, but not enough to, fall in love with a movie that I found to be ludicrous and formulaic. It just seems to me that Hollywood should learn that maybe comic book blockbusters can be mass produced, but romantic comedies aren't the same animal. Yeah. And romantic comedies need certain things to succeed that are sort of quirky and not generic. I don't know. Um, Here is, some of the best news I've heard in a long time. And I made a note of it. I wanted to bring it up on the podcast because you like going to the movies. I do. And I love going to the movies and I'm assuming most of our listeners do. Uh, Last week, TCM fathom events showed it's a wonderful life nationwide. And I believe there were two screenings on Sunday and two screenings on Wednesday, the week before Christmas. And some theaters didn't show it twice on the Wednesday. They only showed it once. So nationwide, I'm thinking average, there were three screenings of this film nationwide. It made a million and a half dollars. Holy shit. So people went yeah. and, and, and think, think about this. It's not shown as much as it used to be when it was in the right. public domain, right. but right. NBC showed it on Christmas Eve night. So it was available. And this gave me tremendous hope that people still want to go to the movies. But then I read this, and this knocked my socks off. Uh, Puss in Boots, a film I'm guessing you haven't seen yet, uh, came out a week ago and made $18 million because it's the Christmas season. Right. And and parents want to take their children to see something animated and charming. In one week, Puss in Boots made $18 million. That's a lot of money, and I'm glad people are going to theaters. But compare it to the following. That is more money than The Fablemans made in seven weeks, Tar made in 12 weeks, and Banshees of Inishirin made in 10 weeks 
combined. Holy shit. So I think, A, Hollywood needs to do a better job advertising blockbusters and getting people out to the show, or people of a certain generation have to stop streaming everything. (laughs) I'm serious. And go back to movies. What is making money in movie theaters these days? Children's films, because parents want to take their kids to see something, and other things. But what we used to regard as prestige movies that are going to get like Oscar bait and are going to be awards friendly, it seems like people would rather stream those. Yeah. And finally... If you live in the Los Angeles era, wait, that's wrong. That's that word I'm saying. If you live in the Los Angeles area, please be aware uh, that Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, this famous magazine that influenced my generation, um, went from Ray Ferry, who declared bankruptcy, to a gentleman named Phil Kim. I believe it's been sold again. And the new owners of Famous Monsters are trying to do new merchandising and trying to revive the brand. Here's my point. The weekend of Friday the 13th, the weekend of January 13th, Famous Monsters is having a film convention. Is They're having a film screening series at the famous, formerly Grauman's Chinese, now TCL Chinese Theater. Here's why you should be excited. On Friday night, they're showing... Phantom of the Opera, the Lon Chaney version, Frankenstein, and Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Wow. On Saturday, they're Hmm. showing the original Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein, the original Mummy, the original Wolfman, the original Invisible Man. And on Sunday, they're showing the Spanish Dracula, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, Abbott and Costello um, meet Frankenstein, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Revenge of the Creature in 3D. It's a weekend-long, crazy thing. There's all sorts of different tickets available. If you have money coming out of your ears, there's this special crazy ticket that gets you treated like a VIP, or you can do it a la carte. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to work it so that I can go. Yeah, don't you kind of need to like get a hotel right there? Exactly. Okay. Um, so that adds to the expense. Right. Um the the crazy ticket for people who have won the lottery, they give you a reusable popcorn bag and you get unlimited popcorn for the weekend and a T-shirt that glows in the dark and a button and Frankenstein comes to your house and has dinner. <laughs> and um, I just, a couple of weeks ago, we went to see Blade Runner at the TCL Chinese Theater um in the big room in the big yeah. screen and yeah. that theater is just it's got to be one of the five most beautiful theaters wow. in all the world so if you're into universal monsters as i know a lot of you are check it out it's the we it's it's in two weeks okay i had finally. i had oh yeah no uh but i had two more movies that i was gonna oh, talk about yeah. for the ugly no like we could skip them because why beat up but they were the i'm just gonna name them because i had teased them as movies i didn't like from directors i do uh, that I had to move into the ugly, and that was Judd Apatow's The Bubble that he made for which Netflix. I've, which I've read about, but I haven't seen. Truly one of the worst movies of the year. And Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, which I thought we could beat up on, but let's not. Okay, I have one thing to say about The Whale. I am not a fan of Darren Aronofsky. I have big problems with Darren Aronofsky. And what I've read so far about The Whale, because I am a sizable American man, 
tells me that I would find that film very, very offensive because from what I've read, I know I'm speaking from ignorance. I haven't seen it yet. I heard the Brendan Fraser performance is amazing, but what the film has to say about being fat is condescending and offensive. I think the movie is condescending and offensive in ways that go well beyond what it has to say about size. Uh, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but uh, I I found it to be, I think Rob called it a catastrophe and he's right. And I'm basing a lot of my opinion on Rob's review, which I read and enjoyed. And I just forgot for a second because I haven't seen it that you have. Yeah. Now I'm a sizable young man. Would I like the whale? There are so many reasons you would not like the whale. Uh, the whale is a movie that you would enjoy hate watching. Well, I will say this. Would the whale at least make me happy that I'm capable of leaving the house? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Um, because I made a point in my year-end thing this year. Uh, to point out how many fat suits we had a witness this yeah, year. Yeah. That seems to be a trend. And yeah. again, I'm not on the social justice bandwagon, but maybe we can hire overweight actors to play some of those parts. I think you even forgot one because I was thinking the other day about Colin Farrell in The Batman. And I was like, oh, I think JB forgot to mention that. One. Well, there's a story behind that. That was originally on the list. Okay. But I got rid of it because papal dispensation. I thought that was one of the most interesting performances I saw all year. Well, I liked his performance. I just and the makeup, they put him in a fat suit. The makeup and the suit had something to do with it. I mean, he was literally unrecognizable. 100%. And it was seamless. I mean, whoever did that makeup, it was, it was crazy. So I felt that didn't fit with the other ones. Sure. But what do I know? I'm overweight. Uh, All right, you have a game for us. Okay, here's a quick game. For those of you who are still listening, we're now on hour three of the uh, Not For Me Ugly Underrated podcast. So I'm looking through the list uh, last week of all the films that were released in the United States in this calendar year. And I came to the conclusion that with streaming and everything, there are now too many movies. That every year there's usually more movies than you could reasonably expect to see. But now it's just grown exponentially. It's exploded. So I went through the list of every film released in the United States and I and I and I drew a thesis. And right. here's the thesis. I believe, I firmly believe that no one has seen the following films. Except the people behind making them. Okay. And because you, sir, see a lot more movies than I do, I want to test this thesis. <laughs> I don't necessarily see a lot more new movies than you do. I don't know. I don't know. I have a list of 10. Okay. Here's the way the game works. Okay. I'm going to say the title. If you haven't seen it, say no. Okay. I haven't seen it. That's one for me. The minute you've seen one of these films, I lose. Okay. Because that blows apart my thesis. Got it. Clearly, someone in middle America right. saw this film. Now, 
do you want to make it interesting? And for you to say yes, did it have to be in a movie theater? Ooh. There's very little chance I saw it in a movie theater. Okay. Because I thought that wouldn't be fair. Because the minute we add that, I win. Yeah. But as I made this list, I was honestly wondering, because I don't keep track of what you see. No, nor should I have known. I have no knowledge of what you're watching on Christmas Eve because there's a thousand movies you haven't seen and you've seen Elvis before. <laughs> so anyway, I thought this would be interesting for the listeners who are still with us um, to see how far we get into the list. Have you seen any of the following films? Okay. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. No. Not one human being in the United States, in the continental United States, has seen that film. Film number two, Paradise City. Yes. I knew it because of the cast. I knew you. Okay. <laughs> it, so uh, now, I want to hear I want to hear the other eight, but that was the subject of half of our holiday show this year because we've each picked a 2022 Nicholas Cage, 2022 Nick Cage movie and a 2022 John Travolta movie. And that was the only Travolta movie in 2022. Right. And I'm behind on my podcast listening. But That's clearly, okay. If I had listened to that podcast, I would be more willing to, to, I would have won the game. Let's keep going. Wouldn't it be interesting if Paradise City is the only one? Yes. Uh, Jerry and Marge go large. No. Not one Senient human being in the continental United States actually watched that film. Film four, the greatest beer run ever. Nope. Father of the Bride, the newest reboot. Nope. The Andy Garcia one. Senior year. Yes. Rebel, <clears throat> Rebel Wilson for Netflix, yes. right? Yeah, I saw yes. that one. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Alone together. Remind me what Alone Together is? It's possible I saw that. See, I have little notes to remind myself of what these damn things were. Oh, no, I didn't see it. Okay. That's a COVID uh, movie, right? My, yes, very definitely. Mind Cage. <laughs> no. I thought maybe you would have because Malkovich is in it. <laughs> no, it sounds like a this, Seinfeld movie. This got a theatrical. Oh, Jerry, I didn't get to see the Mind Cage. <laughs> Um, this actually got a theatrical run by me, but I didn't go. See how they run. No. The um, what's the the what's his face? Yeah. Me time. No. And finally, high heat. <laughs> That's the Olga Kirilenko yes. movie, right? Yes. No, I didn't yes. see it. Man, so wait, you're. I saw 20% of them. If I had left Paradise City. Yeah. And. Senior year. Senior year off the list. Yeah. I would have won. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That blows my thesis. Clearly, this shows us there's an audience for any film under the sun. 100%. Any film that's released. Patrick might chance upon it. I might. (laughs) I will not chance upon it because I will be busy watching. It's a mad man. <laughs> Thank you guys very much for listening next week. We do our top 10 show. So make sure you tune in for that. And all next week we will be running our uh, best of 22 series at F this 
Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and on YouTube. And of course, as mentioned previously, we have a Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash fthismovie for more content. Thanks again, JB. Yes. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.